Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast from Pearson. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode, I catch up with Twitter icon Adam Boxer, one of the strongest voices in UK science education today. We have a wide-ranging chat about all things teaching, with a specific focus on evidence-based practice to improve student outcomes. Adam talks through the approaches he takes with his classes to ensure learners are engaged, and highlights the need to objectively observe proxies for good learning in the classroom. We also get a chance to talk about the side products he's involved in, including his well-known Carousel Learning Programme and his involvement with the innovative CogSciSci community on Twitter. Hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get started. Uh, What I'm going to ask you first is a little bit about your science background. So what first kind of turned you on to science uh, in your youth, so to speak? Was it a teacher? Was it the subject? Uh, what made the difference for you in terms of your, your first steps into science as a young younger man? Uh, I'm afraid it's awfully more prosaic than uh, someone ever inspiring me or the like. Um, I came from a background where, well, not necessarily my home background, but the, the school context that I was in placed science very much on a pedestal. Um, and it was always kind of, um, I, I actually had a place to do medicine when I finished school. So I had, uh, I was going to take up medicine at King's college at the end of my sixth form. Um, but I don't think I ever actually wanted to do medicine. <laughs> so my grandfather was a doctor. My father was a doctor, young Adam too. He shall be a doctor. It was just always kind of assumed as opposed to, uh, anything that I ever actually wanted. Um, and I took some time and I did, you know, I, 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 Basically, I went to study in Israel for a couple of years. Uh, and at that point, I decided to turn down the place to do medicine. Um, but then I was looking at my options. and I had A-levels in maths, biology and chemistry, which, to be honest, doesn't really leave you uh, with many doors open. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I still enjoyed science. Um, but like, I'm not a massive science nerd. Um, I do, you know, I, I enjoy science. It's the thing that I'm best at um, academically. Uh, and obviously, I tremendously value its importance uh, in wider society and the like. Uh, but I had uh, A-levels in, bi- in biology, chemistry, and maths. My biology was pretty poor. Um, I never had the, I never had the, uh, the what's the right word, um, diligence to be any good at biology because there was too much learning uh, and I was never, uh, I, I never had the commitment for that. Uh, so I took, and I was, I was good at maths, but I was no mathematician. Uh, and I, you know, the people who study maths at university are generally like real mathematicians. And I definitely wasn't one of them. So I took up, uh, so I applied for chemistry. I did chemistry at UCL. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that, that's where I got my degree. And the rest of history. So did you, after you'd, um, because obviously a chemistry very ac- academic degree, um, did you feel when you were doing that, that that uh, was the path you're going to go down? I guess at some point you thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to be a chemist. Or was there a period before you became a teacher where you kind of explored a few options um, before going down that route? Yeah, so it took me about, it took me about six months to realise that I didn't want to do chemistry with the rest of my life. Um, it was, I, I, I really enjoyed the big picture stuff. So, you know, being exposed to quantum mechanics for the first time is like mind blowing. You know, there's nothing like it. Um, but then once you start getting into the details of solving the Schrodinger equation and the like, that all got a bit much for me. Um, and I, I, got, I got to a point where I was doing it, but I wasn't enjoying it all that much. Um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, and I th- I've been doing a lot of community education and youth work. So I thought I'd have a punt and apply to be a teacher. And um, I, I, I broke the news to my parents 
and uh, you know, it took it took my dad a good few years <laughs> before he um, uh, accepted <laughs> that teaching was a proper job. Uh, but he got there in the end. But my mum, when I told my mum, she was like, "Oh, that's fine. I always knew you were going to be a teacher." So. <laughs> She just never bothered to tell me. <laughs> so all of that time that I've been applying for medicine and agonizing about what to do with my life, she was like, yeah, I knew. I just needed you to get there by yourself. Um, so I applied for, for teaching and straight out of university, I did a PGCE. Um, and then I've been in the classroom since then. And that was seven years ago, 2013, I did my PGCE. And how did you find uh, kind of that transition? Obviously, doing youth work must have helped in terms of moving into kind of working with young people in the classroom. Um, do you have any particular memories of your first, you know, couple of years of teaching and kind of uh, things that stick out in, in terms of things maybe you did wrong, perhaps in the first couple of years, like we all do, um, that really kind of impressed on, you know, I'm never going to do that again. What were those first couple of years like when you started school or were you just seamlessly transitioned straight to teacher because you, you had a, such a kind of passion for it? I don't, I don't think anyone seamlessly transitions. Um I think the PGC is a very demanding year, um, as you know, and it's demanding on everybody, uh, even the people who appear to be flourishing and doing incredibly well, um, right beneath the surface, probably not so much. You know, the PGC was a very difficult year. You know, I, 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 I do admit that um, after my first university observation, I was like in pieces. I was all over the place. It was tragic. It was awful. Um, and, you know, it was like emotionally, that's really difficult uh, to handle. Um, but you know, the feedback that I got was helpful and it was what I needed to hear. Um, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't point to like one overriding thing that I learned, but I did a lot of stuff then that I think is a bad idea now. I wasted a lot of people's time, including um, my own, my students, um, doing ineffective practices, a lot of discovery learning, a lot of inquiry learning, a lot of posters, a lot of group work, a lot of kids wandering around the room looking at, you know, quotes on the wall, um, a lot of... Uh, yeah, just, you know, that kind of the, the uh, competitions, that kind of nonsense, like the wool that is really kind of, you know, it's becoming less fashionable now, fortunately. But, you know, the, if we talk about this sort of 20, you know, 2010 era, you know, the five years either side of that when things were really, really um, kind of hippy dippy in that way. Um, and it was just, you know, not effective. And I don't think, you know, I was, I was, I was quite good at executing ineffective things, which was, you know, so it's, it's like, I, it's not like anyone was coming into my room and was saying, you know, Adam, maybe, maybe don't let them work that one out for themselves. Maybe just, you know, tell them no one was giving me that feedback. I was getting great feedback from all of my lessons. They're like, oh yeah, really good. I really like the way you did that nonsense group work, or I really like the way you did that stupid discovery activity, uh, you know, so it, it's not like anyone was ever saying to me that the stuff I was doing was totally mad and a waste of everybody's life. Um, but, you know, I was doing it and it is what it is. I guess I, I didn't know any better. Um, so, you know, you, you just have to kind of look back and think, all right, well, that was then. This is now. Uh, let's do things differently and not waste anybody's time. Do you think, I was thinking about those kind of approaches, and as you say, all my, myself have fond memories, of maybe not fond memories, of sticking stuff on the wall and getting kids to, to wander around the room and look at stuff, um, whether it, it felt almost, um, maybe from a science background, that this this wasn't working and, and kids are not going to discover uh, moles, uh, no matter how well you've uh, ex- explained your activities um, in terms of some real deep understanding, and it doesn't really kind of sell very well in science would you say uh do we do you think the science teachers maybe were the most cynical of, of the lot or uh, or not not well so I, I i wish that were true but i think one of the things that cognitive science has taught us is that people um aren't necessarily uh, expert outside of their domain 
and the things that you're really good at applying within your domain, uh, the cognitive skills that you're really good at applying within your domain, like analysis, evaluation, that kind of stuff, uh, you tend to flounder the second you go outside of your domain. Um, so I don't think it's any surprise that um, that science that, that this stuff was rife within science teachers as well. And I mean, still, still to this day, you know, there are science teachers up and down the country still doing this stuff and saying it's the best thing in the world and saying it's the right way for students to learn. Um, you know, a lot of the time when, when I, when I ask people for evidence, people get annoyed and offended with me and I'm like, well, you know, all, I, all I'm doing is, you know, you know, if you say to me, uh, you know, like, like practicals using practicals in lesson, right? Like where, where's the evidence that this works, right? Where's, where's like the randomized control trial evidence that doing a practical in a lesson contributes to student learning. There's all sorts of, you know, theories and stuff out there that don't have any evidence yet. You know, um, why, why are people telling me that, um, that if I do things this way or that way or science capital way or whatever, that I'm going to end up with more students taking science at university. Okay. Well, where's the longitudinal evidence for that? Have you, have you got any? But no. So, so then you can't like, it's not it's not it's not a valid claim you know uh, the, the late great christopher hitchens had his own razor hitchens razor a razor is a philosophical device for getting rid of options so the most famous is occam's razor right so uh you know if i drop a ball so it could be that um there's universal attraction between objects of mass it could also be that magical pixie fairies grab the ball and carry it down to the ground right occam's razor tells us how to eliminate possibilities and it says uh, take the simplest one take the simplest explanation so hitchens razor is that which is asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence and sure i mean there, there are plenty of empirical studies about you know people looking at lessons and talking to kids and saying you know well we've concluded this we've concluded that whatever but i'm like hey okay, that's fine just give them a pre-test right give them a post-test wait a week give them another post-test make sure it's randomized make sure it's controlled or to be honest like i, I don't really see why i should listen to be honest um so you know the the, the difficulty is taking that mindset which we would 100 percent. there's not a science teacher in the country who would not apply that mindset to you know standard um, issues within the physical sciences and yet when it goes outside of that then we tend to be a lot weaker and I confess you know I was that person as well you know I genuinely believed it was an empirical fact that students learn best when they figure something out for themselves when they discover it by themselves I just thought it was a, I just thought it was a truism right that it was just something that was true about the universe um, and then I found out later that it wasn't right at all and that there's quite a lot of randomized control evidence that that's not the case so you know obviously like you know feeling you know feeling ashamed is not the right word because i think it's a part of the you know normal part of the human psyche um, but i think we do have to be aware of our limitations and you know I, I wouldn't consider myself to be particularly good at evaluating evidence in say history or uh, evaluating evidence in archaeology so uh, you know or even even like the soft sciences like uh, am i any good at evaluating what counts as evidence in e economics Obviously not. I just I don't know anything about it. So why would I sit here and say, no, that counts as evidence. That doesn't count as evidence, you know. So um, but we we just there's a whole bunch of stuff that we just assume is true. Um, and we kind of uncritically swallow uh, in a way that if it was a if it was a domain that was more familiar to us, we probably wouldn't. And do you think that's getting better over time? Because my feeling is that people are kind of moving towards um more evidence-based as you would hope 
um, you know, evidence for teaching. Do you think that's slowly kind of creeping in the right direction in your eyes? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So there's been two great movements here. So the so the research aids kind of groundswell upwards, um, which in turn has provoked or promoted changes coming downwards. So it's now becoming like the done thing to be using evidence now. So and I think, you know, research ed started a lot of that. But, you know, if you think about organizations like the Education Endowment Foundation, um, evidence based evidence based education, there's a whole lot of groups out there that are now promoting evidence in education. I mean, even Ofsted, right, where Ofsted's research used to be they'd just go out into schools that they thought were ace and they'd just write down the stuff that they saw. Um, but now, like, you know, if you look at the education inspection framework, so it's, it comes with um, a research summary, which is all of the research they've done to support it. And it's not like, oh, you know, we went into this school and we saw they were using, you know, uh, you know, the uh, Bono's thinking hats and we thought that was great. It's not like that anymore. It's, oh, no, we looked at this paper and this is what they said. We looked at this trial and this is what they said. Um, and, you know, that's why you get paragraphs in there that say things like stop marking. It's not a good use of your time. That's why you get paragraphs in there that say uh, differentiation by task is not a good use of your time uh, because they're, they're, you know, they're looking at the research. They're looking at the evidence. They're trying to be dispassionate. They're trying to figure out what actually works in the most in the greatest number of contexts and is the easiest to apply. Um, and yeah, that stuff is creeping through and that is without a doubt a good thing. And, 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 and I'm, and I'm fortunate, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that I have the chance to kind of participate in that debate. And do you think you're, you're quite a big, uh, believer or supporter of direct in, instruction in teaching at the moment. Do you think that kind of reflects a little bit of way, about the way things are assessed, uh, with a very knowledge rich curriculum at the moment, obviously with, uh, I know, um, at the time of this recording, it's January 2021 and exams. Um, at the time of recording, we're not sure what's going to happen with them or, or what type of assessment they're going to go forward. But um, generally, we're looking at exam-based knowledge uh, term, terminal tests. Do you think direct instruction just works better for the way uh, you know students are assessed at the moment? Or do you think that is always going to have a value, say, in 20 years' time? Is it still going to be uh, as valuable as it is today? Or do you think people will have um, shifted their view a little bit, depending on how assessments change? Um, there's a good question about the relationship between assessment um, and learning. Look, di- direct instruction, and here I don't necessarily mean the... It's important when you talk about direct instruction to distinguish between capital D, direct, and capital I, instruction, and lowercase direct instruction. The former, capital D, capital I, is um, is a set program of activities that are designed by Zig Engelman and others, Um and they have for, for maths and for English. And there's a couple for science, but not many. Um, but it follows, it's a very formulaic. It follows a specific script. Uh, there are things you have to do um, in a very specific order. It's highly effective at what it does. Um, but what I do in the classroom is not that because I'm not following one of their programs. I have my own curriculum. I have my own teaching style. Uh, it's influenced by principles from capital D, capital I instruction. But that we refer to, we generally refer to it as lowercase direct sorry, lowercase d, lowercase i, direct instruction, or explicit instruction. If you want children to learn things, um, there's no doubt in my mind that that's the most effective way for them to do it. Um, The exams, as they are at the moment, are designed to measure how much students have learnt, which means that if you want your students to do well in those exams, they need to learn lots of things. The best way for students to learn things is via uh, explicit instruction. Now, yeah, you could think of an exam that doesn't measure things that they've learnt in school. But um, within assessment parlance, that's called construct irrelevant variation. It measures things which is irrelevant to what you're actually trying to figure out. Um, what's a good example of this? Um, so 
uh, in like science exams, right, whenever they use something that, um, I, I give you a good example. There was one I was looking at today. Um, uh, the Earth and the atmosphere questions, right? So it talks about what, what, uh, what does the Earth's early atmosphere consist of, right? It says student gets it wrong because they don't know what the word consist means, right? But if you'd have written what was the Earth's early atmosphere made up of, they would have got it right, yeah? That's called construct relevant variation because what you want to know is if this child knows what was in the Earth's early atmosphere. You, you don't really care at the moment if they know what the word consist means, unless you're saying, no, actually, I do. It's part of science assessment, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I think you get the point that if you're trying to measure student learning, then direct instruction, explicit instruction is the right way to do it. If you're trying to measure like, like nonsense things, like how good a student can perform on a group task, right? Well, then, you know, sure, you're going to have to have a different assessment and you have to have a completely different teaching style because it's, you know, something else completely. But like science is the stuff that you know. That's what it is. You know, you can call it whatever you like. No, science is creativity. But what are you creative with? You're creative with the stuff that you know. So the best way to get children to know stuff is by direct or explicit instruction. So unless there's radical changes in the assessment regime, which I don't think there will be, um, then then uh, I hope that it continues to go from strength to strength and from popularity to popularity. I was thinking, um, changing tack a little bit about um, something that you have presented in the past about um, poor proxies for learning and specifically the way we, uh, or either we as teachers think about observing what our students are doing and also obviously other people coming into our lessons and making assumptions about uh, what good learning is. And I think you mentioned things like, you know, are, you know, are the kids quiet? Do they look engaged? You know, are they, are they writing stuff? Um, could you tell us a bit about, um, I think it was Professor Coe you were talking about, about um, what are, what are good policies for learning and uh, kind of dig into that a little bit a bit could you explain that uh, sure so so let's unpack the phrase a bit first um learning is the analogy that i use it's like um if you, if you want to figure out if someone's in love right so let's say uh, you've got two people and you want to know if person a is in love with person b so you can never know for sure because you can't really drill inside their head but you look at the things that they do you know they spend a lot of time with them they buy them flowers, chocolates, they might ask them to marry them, they might even say, I love you. And from all of that, you might conclude that the person really loves them. But, you know, one only has to look at the uh, the phenomena of trophy wives to know that this is not the case, right? You know, so anyone can pretend they love somebody else, right? So you're never going to know for sure. It's about looking at observable behaviors, or what we might call a proxy, and trying to infer what's going on under the hood. Scientists do this the whole time. You can't, no one can see, you know, the example we used earlier of gravity, universal attraction between matter. You can't see that, right? It's a theory. You look at a whole load of evidence and you produce a theory based on it. Will you ever know for sure that your theory is true? Of course not, right? Because all of this evidence you're looking at could be explained by something else. And the same is true of learning, that you will never know for sure if a, if a person has learned something. All you can ever do is look at observable proxies, uh, which are, you know, behaviors things that people do now one of the things that a person might do is answer a question so i'd say to them you know what is the word equation for photosynthesis and they might give me the correct answer now i could reasonably infer from that that they know the word equation from photosynthesis for photosynthesis but of course cognitive scientists tell us that learning is a change that has to happen over the long term so if i do a lesson today about photosynthesis and at the end of the lesson i ask the students what is the word equation for photosynthesis and they tell it back to me Okay, well, if I come back in a month, are they still going to be able to do it? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. It depends. 
But what that means is that I can't say for certain whether or not something has been learned today, because learning is a process that happens over the long term. And so what the terminal exam tries to do is it tries to establish the extent to which a person has learned something by taking observable behaviors in the sense of questions that they've, that they've answered. So the observable behavior is the question that a student is answering. And you infer from that the stuff that the student has or has not learned. Uh, and out of this, you know, this, this kind of simple insight, which isn't, you know, obviously it's not original, this goes back quite a while. Um, out of this simple insight comes um, the problem with traditional kind of lesson observations, where you go into a class and a teacher teaches topic X, and then 20 minutes later does some mini plenary, the kids will get it right, and you go, woo, progress over time, it's done, yay, happy days, move on. Uh, but in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that. Or you'd go into a lesson, you'd see lots of children who are very busy, lots of children who seem to be working very hard, and you'd assume that they've learned something. Um, but you, that doesn't tell you anything about the content of the work. The work could be complete nonsense. Um, the work that they're engaged with could be stuff that they've learned in the past. Uh, so it doesn't actually tell you whether or not learning has taken place. Um, and, and what Coe is railing against is, uh, and he's got a list of poor proxies for learning, and he's, he's, he's saying that all of these things, they're, they, they're, they're just snapshots in time. They're one small thing that you've looked at, and they don't necessarily tell you anything interesting. And too often we've pursued observable behaviors that, that tell us very little about learning. So his most famous one is engagement is a poor proxy for learning. So if you go in and you see students are having fun or they're engaged, they're like really active, they're at their seats, all of that stuff. And you think, oh, this is amazing. It's such a learning atmosphere. I'm buzzing. And you walk out and you think that's brilliant, fantastic. But like in reality, they might have been learning very, very little. They might have just been either practicing stuff they can do already or they might have just been uh, focusing on surface details that don't matter. You know, students are incredibly engaged when you ask them to make a PowerPoint presentation about a particular topic. But, what they, they, but the question is what they engaged with. They're engaged with the act of copying and pasting from BBC Bite Size. So obviously that's not particularly impressive and they're not actually going to be learning anything, even though they're really engaged. And here, classically, we cite the uh, research of Graham Nuttall, The Hidden Lives of Learners, where he essentially just wandered around classrooms listen, listening to students and seeing what was going on in their heads. Uh, and he pointed out that students tend to be most engaged with the stuff that they know best already. Uh, so things that are easy to them. So we tend to be really engaged with things that are super easy. Um, and when things are difficult or dare I say, like, um, like, like hard and the stuff that you have to really crunch your teeth over and isn't necessarily immediately enjoyable. Um, so students tend to be really a lot more disengaged with that. But in reality, stuff like that leads to much longer term learning. Um, because you're focusing on depth, you, fo you know, there's, there's what we call a desirable difficulty. There's a challenge associated with it that promotes good learning, whereas focusing on surface details and nonsense like uh, the which particular word art you use in your PowerPoint presentation um, does not lead to long-term learning. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but, <laughs> but there it is. No, no, it's, just, it's, good. it's a very good answer. I was just thinking about the way that... Um uh you know teachers are observed Let, let's say i think uh maybe 10 years ago i, I was observed every uh, five minutes it seemed um but yeah. um i just wonder whether there is is there a way is there a good way of observing teachers and giving them good feedback and, and in, in, if there is 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 there a is there a form you can do it with so to speak is there something you can use as a as a as a good guide to give genuine useful feedback for, to teachers to improve um, their students uh, actually, you know, learning within that lesson when it is so difficult sometimes to see and know uh, in that short period of time, you know, maybe an hour, maybe four to five minutes to do it. Is, is there a way around that? Is there a way that you can you can observe teachers in a kind of a positive, proactive, but useful way to them to be better? 
Yeah, I think you can. I mean, the, the, the most important thing with observation culture is that it's got to be handled sensibly and with humility. Um, I think what the problem with what used to happen in the bad old days is that there were like assumptions about what you'd expect to see. And sometimes that expectation was like, oh, you know, there's just a feeling that I need to have when I walk in the room. And you're like, well, that doesn't actually help anybody. Um, and and it's, it's kind of complicated. And there are many debates about whether, you know, subject specialism, for example. So, you know, when an English teacher walks into my chemistry A-level class and judges the quality of my marking, which, by the way, does not happen at my current school. Uh, and I'm like, <laughs> who the hell do you think you are? Like, you can't even, you don't even know what the words mean, let alone can you judge the quality of my marking uh, or the quality of my instruction or the you know, lesson activities that I'm doing. You know, I, have, I have a colleague who was told, he's, he was teaching A-level biology and he was told that the level of challenge in the questions was inappropriate, right? It was a year 13 class, a week before their mocks, they were doing exam questions and he was told that the difficulty of the exam of the questions would he was like what, what are you talking like by an english teacher who do you think you are like you can't like, go away you, you don't have the right to say that to me so i think there is an important um, point to be made about subject specialism but let, let me give you an example right so let's say i walk into a classroom and uh, the teacher's asking questions from the front you know everyone's nice and behaved uh, and they say uh, david what's the word equation for photosynthesis and David gives the answer. Okay, so I say to the teacher afterwards, you didn't do something called cold call. So cold call is a Douglas Moff technique, is a teach like a champion technique, where you put the student's name at the end of the question. So instead of saying, David, what's the equation for photosynthesis? You say, what's the equation for photosynthesis? David. And the reason why you do that is because the second you say David, everybody else stops listening. Right, so I can tell for sure that if you've got 30 students in the class and only one of them is listening to you, then, then less learning is going to take place across that 30 seconds while that's happening. So I can say, look, you know, whoever the teacher's name is, you know, Stephanie, Stephanie, like you should have used cold call. And Stephanie goes, ah, oh, damn, of course I should have done. So we have strict parameters about when cold call is appropriate, when it's not. So if there's a question that you're expecting students to know the answer to, cold call is appropriate. If it's something you're not expecting students to know the answer to, like if you ask them to suggest something or go beyond what you've learned today or, you know, bring something from their own personal experience. So cold call is not appropriate because, you know, you, it's it's not fair to put a kid on the spot for something they can't reasonably be expected to know, right? But in a case where it's something that they're expected to know, if you don't use cold call, right, then obviously I'm I'm going to have a problem with that. You know, if uh, if one of if one of my team asks a question, right, so they say, uh, okay, so they do the cold call properly. They say, what's the word equation for since it's David, and David goes, uh, sorry, I, I I didn't hear that, and then you repeat the question. Well, that's no good. I say to you afterwards, look, you shouldn't have done that. You, you essentially allowed that student to not be listening to you. And you said, it's okay for you to not be listening to me. Don't worry. I'll just repeat the question. It's not good enough. Like, what does that say about your classroom culture if you're allowing students to get away with that? So what do you do next time? You have to say, look, David, I'm, I'm, I'm really annoyed, actually, because you need to be listening to me the whole time. If I come back to you again and you don't know the answer to the word equation of photosynthesis or you're not listening to me, then I'm going to bring you back afterwards and you're going to do some extra work for me. Well, that's a completely different story, isn't it? And I'll walk out a happy man because that way I know that you're building a, a culture in your classroom where students are expected to be listening to you the whole time and there's some accountability there. Uh, so, you know, there are some things that we that we assume are, you know, associated with good outcomes, you know, retrieval practice, for example. We know that from hundreds of uh, randomized control trial that retrieval practice is the, is the most effective study technique that we have so far. Right. So the act of answering a question as opposed to being reminded. So if I'm teaching my students about adaptations of, you know, Palisade 
leaf cells. And in the previous lesson, we've already done photosynthesis. Instead of saying, okay, last lesson we learned about photosynthesis. Now the word equation for photosynthesis was da da da. Instead of doing that, I say, okay, last lesson we learned about photosynthesis. What was the word equation for photosynthesis? Please, David. Or I say, everybody write it down in your book. Or I say, everybody write it in your mini whiteboard or whatever. That act of retrieving, pulling up that memory is going to strengthen it in the long term. So I can reason, you know, we know that from the evidence. So I can reasonably assume that if that's taking place in lessons and it's of a good quality and the students are taking it seriously, then there's going to be some long-term learning involved. Now, of course, right, I might go into a classroom and I might think that the retrieval questions that are being asked are completely inappropriate. They might be too difficult. They might be too easy. They might, uh, the teacher might have completely missed uh, or omitted to do retrieval questions that are relevant to today's content. So I would want to see them asking, quite, you know, if, if they're teaching about, you know, let's say it's year seven, you're in the second unit, you're doing cells. I would want to see questions both from the first unit in year seven about particles, but also questions from the current stuff that you're doing in cells to help kind of make those links and activate the memory uh, in a way that strengthens it. So it's not, it wouldn't be good enough for me to say, oh yeah, retrieval practice has happened, tick and walk out. But the nature of, you know, as a subject specialist, I can gauge whether the nature of the, of the retrieval practice um, is good here. So yeah, for sure there are things you can observe. Um, if I walk around a classroom and I see the teacher's done the starter and I see there's a couple of kids who have basically not written anything and they get a free pass from the teacher. The teacher doesn't notice. Well, obviously I'm going to tell the teacher you didn't notice, but, but Dave and Kenny at the back, they didn't write anything. Or I can see that students are writing things, but they're just copying out the questions. Uh, so again, so I can say, look, I mean, this, this isn't good enough. They're not actually thinking about doing the answers. So yeah, obviously there are things that we can notice. Um, you just have to be kind of sensible and be able to draw a path from that to the learning. Um, like, uh, you know, in the bad old days when it was, oh, they did group work and therefore everything's good. Right, well, that was, you know, that's no good. Um, but if you can draw a path from what you're seeing or what you're not seeing to the learning, and that path is both plausible, logical, and uh, evidence-based, then I think I think you're in a decent position. And talking about that book and Teach Like a Champion, it's obviously a very famous book, and um, it's it's a very good book. And I, I thought a lot of the solutions were pragmatic. I was just wondering because I've not seen, I've not read the next version myself. Is how does version two differ from version one? Um, is it better? Um, yeah, so so it's um, Lamov is really clear that it's not it's not a sequel, right? So a lot of people think, oh, I've got to read number one first, and then I read number two. Number two is is basically like the ultimate revised edition of number one, right? So number one has something like forty techniques, and number two has got sixty three. Um, I've never I've never read one because I've never felt the need to. I only heard about it when two was already out, so I just bought two because you don't need. 1.0 but uh, your viewers sorry your uh, listeners should be aware that 3.0 is coming at some point um, and will be absolutely magnificent I'm sure and um, talking about questioning I've written down in my notes and this may be an error on my part but I've written down um, what your position your, your uh, opinion is on teacher questioning location in the classroom I've written down there um, I don't obviously in these uh, COVID times when I am um, uh, when we're recording this uh, you know obviously there's some uh, some challenges with that but um what are your thoughts in kind of a normal time about like the, literally the physical position i guess of the teacher in the classroom you're talking about when they're they're having these these um uh questioning sessions yeah so so it kind of varies a bit um i used to be a big wanderer i mean i'd like walk out into the students and be like you know that guy who's like out with the crowd that kind of cool charismatic thing um and then i realized two things i realized first it's distracting um that you know you can't like People don't tend to, you know, if you're moving around, people can't focus 
you can't focus on everything at once. And if someone's moving around, that is intrinsically a bit, a slightly more distracting than if they're not. But more importantly, um, I realized I was turning my back on students. Now, turning your back on students, this is not just a problem for behavior. So the old hands will tell you, oh, if you turn your back on students, they'll start messing around behind you. It's, it's more than that. When you turn your back on students, you signal to them that this part of the lesson is not for them. That often results in bad behavior. But even in good students, they'll pay attention less. And this is what Lamarve calls ratio. So the number of students who are paying attention or are participating in your class at any given time. Um, so, uh, you know, classic example of this is the newbie error of where a student answers a question and they're too quiet. So the rookie teacher moves towards the student. And then the student repeats themselves. They say, yes, good, thank you. That's a rookie error for a few reasons. First reason is because if you can't hear it, nobody else can hear it. When you walk towards that student, you are signaling to the rest of the class that they don't need to listen now. So in fact, what I say to, to rookie teachers is a technique from um, a book called Get Better Faster by Paul Bambrick Santoyo, uh, where he says, step away from the speaker, which is if someone is quiet, you take a step back instead of forwards. So what I do is if someone's quiet, I say, look, I'm really sorry. I can't hear you. And if I can't hear you, there's no way they can hear you at the back. Everybody deserves to be able to hear you. Everybody needs to be able to give you feedback. What if you say something that's not quite right? You want to rob somebody else of the opportunity to give you the gift of feedback? That's not fair. And what if you say something that's right and somebody else doesn't know that? And they don't hear it and they don't learn the right thing. It's not fair on them either. So I need you to speak up. And I ask the students to project. But the way I do that, the physicality is important as well. I don't step towards the student. I might step away from the student and I'll square my body to the rest of the class and I'll sing signal, this is not a conversation I'm having between me and this student. This is a conversation I'm having between me and the entire class. Everybody needs to hear this. It's about culture. It's about what is acceptable, what is not acceptable in this class. And even things like giving an answer that is so quiet that students at the back can't hear it is not acceptable. It's not part of the culture that we have here. The culture we have here is everybody lessens, everybody learns, everybody gives each other feedback. You can't build that culture if students are allowed to get away with being quiet. Now, the corollary to that is where to, where to then stand in the classroom. So I don't move around too much when I'm in the classroom anymore. Uh, and the mob talks about something called Pastor's Perch. So there was this teacher he used to observe called Pastor. Um, and what he noticed is that Pastor would give instructions and then immediately peg it to the corner of the room. And from the corner of the room, he would just stand still and just watch the room. And essentially, Pastor's Perch is the place in the room where you can see the greatest number of students without having to move your head too much. So no one's really in your periphery. You can kind of see everybody. So not only does this give you an advantage in terms of figuring out what the students are actually doing, um, but it also signals to the students that you are watching them, that you are paying attention to the whole class, that there's no, there's not going to be any case of uh, individual conversations between you and somebody else. This is a whole class activity. Uh, and again, it's about building that culture where everybody is listening, everybody is thinking the whole time. Yeah, and I, I kind of think with science as well, it made me think back to um, uh, uh, when I used to teach and in terms of practicals, definitely, and uh, taking that position in the corner of the room to make sure you are seeing the, the full gambit of what is going on uh, at, the, at the front of the, the classroom or, or the back, I suppose, if you if the practical started, um, just to so you can see, you know, you're getting that good view and you're seeing, seeing how the, the, the things are, are progressing. So I think, yeah, position is very important. Um, but as you say, um, interesting what we said at the beginning there because I was I can't remember if it was an old teacher said to me or if I read it a book when 
um, and I used to do it quite a lot, is that but when you start the lesson, almost you're supposed to um, uh, go past the halfway point in the class, even if you only do it once at the beginning of the class. And when you come back to the, to the beginning, apparently that is a, a, a good thing to do to, to, to remind students about who is running the room, so to speak, on a kind of a non-verbal Non, not in a threatening way, but you know, just 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 being comfortable within your own space within the classroom. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there's there's a t- there's a right. There's timing is important. Um, I would when when you start a task. So I I have my my uh, the teachers that I coach use a technique called three thirty thirty. So when you start a task, you go to Parcels Perch for about three minutes, and all you do is you stay there and you wait for students to get settled and make sure they're working. The problem is if as soon as the any transition is going to be the most turbulent point and the biggest point where students might start losing focus. So if you give out the activity and then you immediately go to the first student, then the student who asks his neighbor for a pencil will turn into a conversation about Fortnite or FIFA, right? Whereas if you're in your pastor's perch, you know, the student who asks his neighbor for a pencil, that will just be a conversation about, can I have a pencil, please? And if it escalates into something more, you can spot it immediately and squash it right away. And then they get started on the task. Once that three minutes is over, you need to circulate. And that's what the 30-30 is. You spend 30 seconds with your first student, spend 30 seconds with your second student, and then you might want to go back to Parcels Perch for a bit. Um, but there, when you when you go out and do your circulate, that's when you need to do what's called breaking the plane. So the plane is like an invisible wall of glass that separates you and the students. And you go out into the students um, and that's your way of showing them that you're watching them, you're paying attention, you're reading that you're reading their work and you might want to do that. You know, you do that deliberately and purposefully. So it's not just like wandering around. It's you might lean over a student's shoulder. You might pick up their book. You might ask them to read something to you. But you're like really clearly getting out into them and, and monitoring them and seeing what they're doing. But there's there's a right. The, the timing has to be right. If you time that wrong, then every student pay, behind you starts talking messing around but once they're like deep into a task and they're focused and they know what they're doing that's the right time moving away from uh, the classroom for a moment and thinking about um your contributions to things like twitter um how did you get in, involved in twitter twitter was something that i kind of picked up towards the end of my classroom teaching time um what appeal what is the appeal of that platform and, and do you en- what is it about enjoying sharing stuff is there a particular reason why twitter is your or uh, your main um kind of uh, communication with the world as it were I mean, I'm a, I'm a social media junkie. Um, I would argue that my my Twitter my my Twitter usage is borderline problematic. Um, I like being able, I like arguing. I like a debate, um, and also like anyone like me who's basically an egotistical extrovert likes inflicting their opinions on <laughs> on anybody who unfortunately happens to be passing. Um, and yeah, so so Twitter was the obvious outlet. Um, I got involved, I think, in 2016 following, I used to read the tests um, cover to cover every week. Uh, and there was this guy who, I'm, an, I'm a nerd, like I'm a nerd for teaching. So even when I was doing stupid things in the classroom, I was like reading everything I could. And there was this guy called Tom Bennett who wrote a behavior um, column in the tests. And I liked the cut of his jib. And he at one point wrote an article saying you should be getting on Twitter. And I thought, yeah, let's go for it. And then uh, things kind of went a bit wild from there. Yeah, I know Tom. Tom Benny. He's an he's an excellent writer, um, uh, and yeah, uh, a writer that is good for teaching and for and for the wide wider world. I think I'd say his books are very good, and I did I enjoy his books when I was a teacher as well. He's got a new one out called Running the Room, um, which I definitely recommend. 
Um, yeah, and he's yeah, he's such an entertaining writer, and yeah, and I'll definitely recommend him to other teachers. That's probably still on my last, last question. I was going to ask you which uh, I might dro- drop that now. Actually, what would be the book you re- would recommend to teachers? Would it be Teach Like a Champion? Would that be the one really you need to start with uh, before you moved on to something else? In your opinion, it's it's very difficult because there's a lot of really good stuff out there. There's a lot of rubbish too. Um, now there may or may not be a couple of projects of my own coming up soon that I would recommend, but nothing, uh, nothing available that I can actually mention yet. Give me a few weeks. Um, but basically, the D- Douglamov Teach Like a Champion is is so good and it's so concrete. Um, but I'm not convinced that everybody it's the right book for everybody as like their first book. You know, if 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 someone had given me Teach Like a Champion when I would, had just finished my PGC, I would have laughed at them and said, no, I don't want to do any of this stuff. This isn't for me, right? It's not my style. Um, so, you know, for some people, maybe it's not the right work. If someone's already like, no, I want stuff that's just going to work in the classroom and I want to get it right every time, first time, then Teach Like a Champion, there's nothing like it. But if someone is like needs convincing or uh, needs to think and needs the theories and needs to understand the why of what we do instead of just the how, um then uh, why don't students like school by dan willingham is definitely um gen- generally number one in terms of people's lists because uh, it's just an introduction to cognitive science it's brilliant and there's just a new edition that was published a few months ago um so yeah i definitely recommend that so either one of those two teach like a champion 2.0 or why don't students like school yeah great great starting points i was going to move on to ask you about your your one of your i guess one of your big current pro, um projects question carousel can you tell me about um how that where, where that idea, idea came from where is it at the moment and uh where do you foresee it going in the next i don't know sounds like an interview <laughs> question in the next five years where do you see it going adam no it's, <laughs> this is like this mad project that i'm a part of um i i so we spoke about retrieval practice earlier which is just uh, the act of giving people questions um, and I, you know, I wanted to do it for a long time in my lessons, but I never found a good way to do it. Um, and I built a very simple Excel program called the Retrieval Roulette. And what you do with the Retrieval Roulette is you put, uh, you take an Excel spreadsheet, you put questions and answers into it. So you've got one column that says questions, one column that says answers. And then what the program does is you tell it where you're up to in the questions. So you might be up to topic three or topic four or whatever. Uh, and you tell it how many questions you want and it spits out five, eight, 10, however many you want, random questions from those topics. And it's a great way to start your lesson. It's just up on the board at the beginning of the lesson, every single time students walk in, they know what to do. They sit down, they do it in the back of their book. And, um, you know, it's what I built, uh, you know, that I thought would be useful for me. And I put it online um, and it, you know, it blew up big time. You know, there's now 60, 70,000 visitors to the site that hosts the Retrieval Roulette. Um, and people have made their own ones. You know, we've got, uh, science ones, we've got English, history, math. Actually, we don't have any math ones, sorry, but we've got um, you know all sorts of different subjects. Um, pretty much all of them except math, because it's not really it's not really the style of how you do retrieval in maths. But for everything else, it's perfect. Um, and and so you know that was chugging along well, but it's got its limitations in that it's only a classroom tool. It doesn't really help students at home because you know you send an Excel sheet home, they're like, oh, I don't know how to use it. I can't press enable editing. I don't even have Excel. That kind of stuff. Um, and you know, it's kind of long story short. Um, I 
joined up with a fellow called Josh Perry and Jose Diaz, who uh, work for and run a company called Air Curie, which is a software development company. Um, and we are pimping up the retrieval roulette. We've turned it into a program called Carousel Learning, which is web-based. Uh, and it is, I tell you, if you've not, if you've not seen it, it is beautiful. Uh, it's a really, really, really great program. You do exactly the same thing. You just put in your Excel spreadsheet of questions and answers. Um, but this, it goes home. So you make out of that, you make a quiz for your students and you send them a link. Uh, they don't need to log in. There's no password, nothing. They just put their name in. Um, and they've got flashcards where they can revise. They've got a test which they can take. They take the test. They then self-mark. You can moderate their marking. You then get detailed analytics on what students got right, what they got wrong, topic by topic, question by question. Uh, we've got, because there's a community area as well. So it means that you can share stuff from somebody else. If you don't, you know, you don't happen to have 600 questions all in Excel lying around, you just go onto the global, uh, the community area and you say, right, well, I'm doing AQA combined science physics and you just punch that into the search bar and you will find the question bank that somebody else has made with you know 700 questions in it and you just click add and then you can set quizzes from it it's it's literally that simple um and since then you know we've got loads of very cool plans in terms of going forwards um and i've done there's loads of science content there now so there's straight questions there's also big uh, balancing equation um, question bank that I put up there. So if you want to give your students balancing equation practice, there's loads of that. I've got physics equation ones. I've got 640 questions all from paper one equations. So it'll be, you know, if the power is, you know, 800 watts and it's left on for 50 seconds, how much energy is transferred, right the way down to kinetic energy calculations, right the way down to specific heat capacity calculations. Um, and again, it's just, you know, it's all there. It's all, you know, free to use. Anyone can take it. Where are we going to be in a few years time? god knows i mean it all sort of like i didn't realize this would be a thing i thought this would just be like a cute side thing but it's now like a fully fledged business um and yeah we're just trying to grow it and i'm trying to kind of keep all my plates spinning um, without driving myself into an early grave um but yeah so i mean hope hopefully i won't be in an early grave within five years uh but uh, but carousel will go from strength to strength Mm, right, and I guess uh, with with you know lots of people contributing, it must you know just just grow organically. And I must, um, I'm all for um, uh, still, even though I'm not uh, teaching in in uh, in schools, mainstream schools at the moment. But um, I'm all for you know time saving. And I was always on the scour, and met, perhaps I I maybe missed the Twitter boat. I think, and uh, I I I got um, uh, I was wading through the TS uh, quagmire sometimes, and there's maybe too much stuff out there sometimes, and, and you don't know what to pick. Um, but it's great to have. Uh, just those that variety and 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 finding things that work for for you as a teacher uh, is is, is invaluable. And I was going to just uh, mention before we go today, talk um, where we could just just quit, do a quick plug for CogSci actually, because I um, I've spoken to various teachers about that. I don't know a lot about it, but I really feel that the aims of the uh, the organisation are quite noble, uh, if, if that's the right word to, to say. Um, could you just tell us a quick brief about what the organisation is about uh, and what what's what's the the goal of it? Yeah, so CogSciSci started a few years ago, um, probably 2017-ish, early 2017. Um, me and a few friends who are like-minded, we were kind of bantering around on Twitter about um, how we needed some kind of way of reaching people and some kind of formality that went beyond just swapping ideas on Twitter. Um, so we founded this thing called CogSciSci, which started just as a hashtag. Um, and CogSciSci stands for Cognitive Science in Science Teaching. So any science teacher who's interested in cognitive science and applying that in their classroom. 
Um, and we did, you know, we were pretty small at first uh, and it was just a hashtag. So if someone was like, yeah, I want to do retrieval practice in science. How am I supposed to do that? Hashtag CoxSciSci. Uh, we did a small conference in, uh, in Norwich. There were about 16 or 17 of us. And the following year, we did one in London, in um, uh, Queen Mary University, I think it was. Was it Mary's? Yeah, I think it was Queen Mary University. And there were about 50 of us. And then the following year, we had 80, 80 and a massive waiting list. And we were graciously hosted by um, uh, the Westminster School. And then last year, we were supposed to have a few around the country. And they were, you know, tickets sold within seconds. Um, for these things um and since then i'd built a website we had a twitter account and we had a uh, um, uh, email distribution list with 2000 science teachers and the like um and then unfortunately covid kicked in and all of that got put paid to but we do still have a beautiful website so i i was you know i set up the website and i was its managing editor but i've actually stepped back in the last couple of months because i don't have the time it's now being run by a guy called adam robbins who's the head of science at the regis school and he's very 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 good we have blogs, we have resources, loads of free resources curated as well. So we don't just put up any old crap. We put, you know, it's like we've checked it. We have criteria and they're all listed on the website. So like if it doesn't have extensive independent practice, like we're not going to post it on our website um, because, you know, we think that's something that's important to people. Uh, we have free CPD. Um, so there's like modules online. So if you want to learn more about what retrieval practice in science looks like, so there's a really good module there that has, you know, different learning goals, uh, research papers, blogs, articles. Um, and of course, if you complete it, you get a certificate at the end as well. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a really, really great, um, it's a great community to be a part of. So in terms generally, because I don't even know time to say, because I know our time is coming to an end, uh, to talk about things like um, uh, the chemical orthodoxy. Where's the best place um, to interact with you? I guess you're going to say Twitter, but um, are there any pl other places that we've forgotten about or anything you want to mention before I ask you about your, your favourite science experiment? If people want to talk to me, they can just email me, adamboxer1 at gmail.com. Just email me directly. You can get in touch on Twitter if you want, but like there's an email address, just use it. It's not a problem. Okay, and and chemical orthodoxy is that more? Is that just your main thought space outside yeah, yeah, Twitter? That's, is that's, it just yeah. a you know a place? That's my blog. So there's a lot of overlap between the stuff I talk about on Twitter and the stuff that's on there. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of things on there if people are interested. Again, resources, articles, ideas. Yeah, there's, you know, and there's and there's loads of other good stuff. Loads of other good stuff as well. So Coxsocie is a great place to go to. You know, if you want to get really rich and diverse thinking you know i don't have the time to blog too much anymore i mean I'm, I'm doing like one or two a month if that i know there's uh, as i say i'm conscious conscious of your time we could almost do a part two because there's lots of questions i haven't <laughs> had time to ask you but um i i, I better wrap, wrap things up soon i was going to ask you uh which i ask all my guests a teacher is is um with your science ex experience and being a science teacher is there any kind of practical that or investigation that you always like to do every year without fail with your students maybe it's just because you like it um maybe there's no learning intention uh but you just think well let's do it i like doing it anyway um what what is there anything that sticks out of your mind that you, you you hate to miss out from one year to the next for your students and it could be from year seven to to sixth form it doesn't matter so I'm, I'm not really one for doing loads of practicals to be honest um for many many reasons I think I think you know the overwhelming majority of practicals like don't contribute anything to learning at all. Um, there is a technique that I use called the slow practical, which is where it's it's like a hybrid between a um, full fledged practical and a demo. So essentially, what you do is you have all your students gathered around your desk at the back and you demonstrate each step. So 
you know, if you're doing, uh, let's say you're doing making a soluble salt, so like copper sulfate. So um, you take your copper oxide, you take your sulfuric acid. So the first thing you do is you measure out your, so actually the first thing you do is collect the equipment. So everybody knows what group they're in. Um, they work in pairs and they know who the person one and person two is. And they say, right, person one, go get goggles and lab coats. Person two, go collect the 50 mil beaker, uh, the, uh, the measuring cylinder and the sulfuric acid and then come back here. And everyone goes, they do that, they come back again. And then say, okay, right, we've got a measuring cylinder. We're going to measure out um, 50 centimeter cubed of sulfuric, of dilute sulfuric acid. Right. Why is it, or 25 centimeter cubed, whatever it is, why is it I use a measuring cylinder instead of using the mark that's on the beaker? Uh, Davy. And then they answer the question, blah, blah. Then I say, okay, go off, measure that, come back again. And then they do each step like that. So um, I'm getting the benefit of, of calmness. Um, of a room where everybody is purposeful and doing what they're supposed to do. I don't give out any written instructions. I don't give out any instructions at all. They don't need them. Uh, and they all manage to complete the practical mm. perfectly within the time that is uh, allocated. It ends up going quicker and nobody, because nobody's messing up or messing around. Um, and I get the benefit of asking them loads of questions and promoting loads of learning. So I, I don't actually do a whole load of practicals. And most of the ones that I do, I do via the slow practical. I do love a good demo. I absolutely love demos. And there's one demo that I always do. Um, and, and it's a bit naughty because by my own principles, I shouldn't do it because ordinarily, I would say with a demo, um, the, problem with, the problem with demos is that a lot of the time we focus on the spectacular and the learning point gets lost um, and students focus on the wrong thing. Uh, there is one practical I like to do, which is when you add um, concentrated nitric acid to copper so you add concentrated nitric acid to copper and you get a uh, copper nitrate. But you also give off tons of like nitrogen oxide gases. And what you do is you feed that out of your conical flask through another flask full of water and the gas escapes and it bubbles out through the water, which is really nice. And then as soon as the reaction finishes, uh, the there's like negative gas pressure because you've just expanded loads of gas from the first conical flask. And basically all the water sucks back through the test tube not through the test tube, through the delivery tube into the main reaction vessel. So the re main reaction vessel where you have the copper nitrate, which is like just a tiny bit at the bottom, then fills up with water and copper nitrate is this like beautiful blue color and it just fills up with this gorgeous blue color and it's like spectacular. Now I use that to illustrate the classic characteristics of a chemical reaction so a temperature change a gas being produced and a color change um but but you know i do it because it's amazing right so i you know I, I take the risk of students focusing on the wrong thing because it is just you know it's, it's, a, it's just beautiful and i think there is something to be said about the awe and wonder um it's just about when and where is the right time to do that is is uh, is a complicated question it's critical. It sounds like a wonderful uh, practical, and I like the idea of those those slow practicals. Uh, I think they might they must give an air of uh, sereneness to your classroom, and I think uh, some really good learning going on as well. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today on the View from Lab podcast. Hopefully, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That brings to a close this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Adam and his thoughts on evidence-based teaching. I encourage you to check out some of the resources he talks about in our conversation and hope they have a positive impact on your classroom practice. As always, please get in touch if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or you want to suggest somebody who you think we should be speaking to. Feel free to email me at andrew.woods at pearson.com to get the conversation started. That's all for now. I'll see you on the next one.